people are operating at 100 hours a week constantly. Like you just can't, there's no room to flex and you're going to need it because business, like a high growth business, it's like, you know, everything's going good. And then it's the fan. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you're joining us from. It's certain spellings once again with billion dollar moves, where it is my job every week to deconstruct the billion dollar moves of world-class funders and founders on their journey of typically underestimated to iconic in the most raw and unfiltered way so that you can do the same. But this time, I'm coming to you live from Davos with the World Economic Forum, and I managed to pull out someone special for you that is totally the billion-dollar mover and shaker that we all want to hear about. Nicole Sahin is the founder, CEO, and exec chair of GP that created and defined the category with its SaaS-based global employment platform. Now, Nicole founded GP in 2012 and changed the rules of international business by enabling organizations to unlock their full business potential, making it possible to hire anyone anywhere in the world within minutes. We'll hear more about how, and we'll talk about the real struggles of globalization and how so many get it wrong, and what it takes to actually scale to a 4.2 billion valuation the way that GP has. You don't want to miss it. So Nicole, we always start uh, with crucible moments. Who is Nicole Sahin and what are the crucible moments that got you to this point? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think ultimately I'm a traveler. So I'm from the Midwest originally and really started traveling in college. And as soon as I did, I just fell in love so much with so many people from all over the world and um, really saw that there's so many talented people in so many places that don't necessarily have access to equal work and opportunity. And um you know, even in the U.S., everybody goes from Missouri. If you wanted to have a good job, you'd have to go to the Silicon Valley or New York or Chicago. And here we are many years later in, in, in a time and place where everybody can work from anywhere. And I'm happy to say that GP helped start an industry and a movement that made that possible. Yeah. So this is interesting. You know, you reflected on your travel and what you saw, the opportunity of the moment and all that. But it's interesting to take an idea and actually execute that and execute it to $4 billion and beyond in the way that you have. And tell us, when when did you first have that idea of GP, you know, globalization partners, which is now rebranded a GP? Yes. Uh, so so basically, I had the idea um, when I, I helped build another company, and we were consultants to help companies like NetSuite and Infinera and Tesla, and those were the babies of the Silicon Valley. Uh, we were a consulting firm that would help companies, those companies set up their operations all over the globe. And basically... It was the same thing over and over again. Every time one of my customers wanted to hire, you know, one person in Singapore, one guy in Brazil, we'd have to go set up a company in that country. And the idea was that we would make it super scalable because we had the how-to of getting it done quickly and easily and built some software on top. But basically, every time we had to set up a company for each country in each jurisdiction. So I, by the time I left that company, I'd probably set up 100 companies in the UK for 100 different customers and 100 companies in China for 100 different customers. And ultimately, I thought if I could just set up one company in each country and give all of our customers access to it, I'd have a much more scalable business model. And my, the founder I was working with didn't want to pursue the idea. So I left... Um, I left and I waited out my non-compete agreement by traveling around the world and hitting 24 countries wow. over the course of a year, which was also a really good time. And um, and one day after after my non-compete was up, I incorporated the company. Wow. So you took rejection, <laughs> yeah. redirected that to your own self and your own motivation to really build this empire. So tell us a little bit more about the business model. I mean, you work with some of the top brands that we now know, but 
behind the scenes, people don't know um, how global operations actually happens. And you're one of the key drivers of that. Tell us a little bit more about the business model and how you work through those intricacies. Yeah, thank you. So basically, um, so in, in the old way of doing business before, before globalization partners, and now there's some other competitors who have set up similar businesses as well. Basically, if a company wanted to hire somebody in Brazil or Saudi Arabia or China, they would have to set up a whole company in that country. It might take three months, it might take a year to do it because you'd have to be legally compliant in that country and figure out how to run payroll, how to pay taxes, how to file tax filings in that country. And it was just a mess. And most companies, big companies, want to have people all over the globe now. So basically what we did was we incorporated one company in each country. And if our customers want to hire somebody in Brazil or China or the UAE, instead of figuring out how to set up a company, they go onto our software they um, can draft an employment contract or a locally compliant employment offer. But when they hit send and the offer goes to their employee, it comes out from our locally incorporated subsidiary instead of the company having to set up their own company. So basically, it's a global legal platform. We have companies all over the globe. Our customers kind of leverage our global legal infrastructure so they don't have to set up their own. And it's software on top of that, so it makes it super easy. So basically, instead of somebody taking three months to a year to, to hire an employee in any one of those countries, it's literally within minutes of them finding the candidate and negotiating the basics that they have a locally compliant employee on yeah. board. And could you tell us, I mean, I think you once used uh, Uber as an example of how globalization is so important and how you need to be able to bring things up to speed very quickly. Right. And obviously Uber didn't do that and Didi has taken over and in Asia it's a very different picture altogether with a lot of more local players. Exactly. Tell us a little bit more about, you know, maybe a case study of what you think is a, this is a great way to explain how GP brings impact and skill. Totally. Okay. So, We'll take, so basically, if you think of any company now, I mean, with information moving at the speed of light, if you have a great idea in the United States or the Silicon Valley and you start executing on it, there's definitely somebody who is working for you who's going to go home to China and copy that idea unless you are also moving into that market very quickly. Let's say you're only doing business in the United States. So 20 years ago, you could say, hey, if we capture the U.S. market, we're happy. It's good enough. Now, it's like that's only maybe a quarter to a third of your total revenue that you would want to go after pretty quickly. And investors are aggressive. They want, if you have a good idea in the U.S., you better go after Europe and Asia at the same time. So basically, um, a lot of our customers, they have a really good business in the U.S. or they're just getting started. But almost immediately, they want to start hiring salespeople in Europe and throughout Asia to sell and start generating revenue in those economies as well and start filing patents or, or doing whatever they need to do to get a lock on the market as quickly as possible. So most of those customers, they'll have their core, like if it's a U.S. headquartered company, they'll have their core company in the U.S. and then they'll use our platform in all the other countries. The reason it makes it fast and easy for companies to go to market is because as soon as they find a salesperson in any country, they can start hiring people instead of kind of figuring out how to do business in all those countries from a legal perspective. Um, other things is like, and now, after the pandemic, people are just hiring talent anywhere they can find it, desperate for engineers. So if you find a good engineer and he or she lives in Finland, they can hire that person in Finland. You know, it's not like they say you have to live in the Silicon Valley. So it's really now about access to talent as much as it is capturing global markets. Absolutely. And who are the some of the companies? I mean, this is your name dropping opportunity. Sure. Like, <laughs> uh, Zoom is one of our key Zoom. clients, mm. as an example. Right. Um, 
I mean, really, it's it's absolutely every company you can think of is who we're working with. Yeah. Yeah. And when you think about uh, globalization, of course, you know, you've become the expert now. You wrote a book, you're a best-selling author, unleashing talent in the globe. And I think this is a great moment for us to unleash talent. You know, I think I, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge believe, believer of talent is everywhere, but opportunities are not. And your work is actually bringing that to the fore. But one of the challenges of globalization is not just, you know, the paperwork behind it, which of course you handle, but really thinking strategically about it, right? We just had actually a founder who's, you know, she's close to 2 million followers, really a big uh, name in the modest fashion industry, built a marketplace, and she thought globalization is the next mm. step. But she didn't focus on the consumer. And in the end, her product was actually, I mean, she basically pivoted completely, is in a different uh, phase of what she has to do now, but realized that globalization was not for her, mm. actually, because this product was not suitable for the consumer that she was targeting. So when you look at entrepreneurs that you've worked with, brands that you work with, what are some of the mistakes that they make in globalization? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Let's let's go with like the top three. That's a fun one. This is a fun one. Yes. I won't say the name of the organization, of course, but there's one of the leading burger chains um, Mm. in the United States. I mean, it's like one of those one of those companies everybody loves. Um, And yet uh, they were they wanted to go into India and they were super insistent on it. And they they wanted to set up their burger chain in India. And their primary concern was not being able to get the best quality of meat. And really what they're known for is very high quality beef. And I had to explain to them, look, guys, Indians don't eat beef. The cow is sacred. Yes, I, I know you're looking at the one billion people, but this is not the market for you, you know? So so I think you're absolutely right, is really looking at the market opportunity um, and really getting that. I think you have to hire local people on the ground and, and keep a close relationship with them. One of our... Um, you know, I think going, you know, accepting local knowledge is always the most important thing as a starting point right. and bringing that in. Yeah. So understanding the local context, what else would you think? I mean, what's an unexpected lesson that you've learned in globalization? I think the different ways of of hiring and managing people globally. Mm. A lot of cultures, people really want to be told what to do. It's much more hierarchical than it is in the United States, for example. If you don't tell people what to do, they're just kind of lost. So um, I'd say one key thing is making sure you always have a really strong general manager on the ground in country, but not so strong that um, they're they're just operating like kind of wild out, out in the wild. You know, you need, you need a strong mm. connection with headquarters, but making sure you have a great local country manager is probably a great next step. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And you have built now a company that I believe you published this, it's public data, you know, has ARR, recurring revenue of about billion dollars. Yes, the, uh, we're way over that in the gross. We're doing about 300, um, 300 net ARR this year. Well, as of now. Yeah. So how did you, you know, from this idea of I'm going to do this, Really, when you think about what are your success factors, right? Yes. How did you get to that stage? I mean, we have a lot of um, startups. You know, one of the things that we were talking in the pre is actually, you know, a a leader that had sold his company for close to a billion dollars, but realizing he couldn't scale himself. When you think about you scaling your business, what were some of your lessons there? I think scaling yourself is probably the most critical thing for a CEO and founder. Um, and really, it's it's a little bit of it's a little bit challenging because we were super high growth. We were all organic growth actually, with three hundred million net um, recurring. And basically, yeah. So I'd say 
number one, I always felt like if I was spending any significant amount of my time on anything, then I, that was my first sign that I needed to hire somebody in that capacity. So for example, if I was spending 30% of my time reviewing legal documents, that was time to hire a general counsel for sure, if not sooner. And I would say... Hold that thought. Ever wondered what unicorns eat for breakfast? Okay, so I don't actually know, but I do know that 20% of all unicorn startups are using HubSpot. And for good reason. HubSpot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales, software, and support. Plus, they have a huge collection of resources to help startups scale. And with the HubSpot for Startups program, you can save big off your first year. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot, visit hubspot.com startups. Basically, in such a high growth environment, you have to hire really top talent as quickly as you can and also be aware that they're going to be not be the right people for the business anymore, maybe as quickly as in like two years. That's really hard for founders to wrap their heads around because when you're in the trenches with people, it's a little emotional because they're really passionate too. And they're in the trenches with you and they're putting all of their passion towards something. But the right CTO for a company doing $25 million a year in revenue is not going to be the same CTO that's the right um, CTO for $100 million a year in revenue. So there's these times in a business, you know, up to 200, like up to 50 employees, 50 to 200 employees, over 200 employees, over 1,000 employees. These are just totally different management styles and types, and you have to constantly upgrade your executive team. Mm. Yeah. That's that's a that's a big one. And when you think about how you did that, I mean, you know, I, I've read a lot of your work and I've been uh, in awe, I would say, of your style of, you know, this is one line that that caught me. I knew that after my time in a previous company, I wanted to build differently. I wanted to spend time with people that I genuinely enjoyed working with. So that speaks to culture that you speak about. But some people just can't scale. How did you navigate that? I mean, clearly for you, you had to let go of some people because yeah. they were zero to one, but not the one to 10 people. What would you advise a founder who's in a similar place oh, to man. manage that? Yeah, it's so hard. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think just a tremendous amount of compassion and love and respect, but also making the hard decisions fast and mm. communicating clearly. So it's funny. I was reading Michael Sanger the other day. He wrote The Untethered Soul, and he was talking about being detached and it's funny because I always felt like um, like the decisions are really obvious. Like when you're running a company, you know intuitively what needs to be done. And anytime I delayed executing on a decision, it just causes so much trouble. And you know pretty quickly when, when you need to make a decision. And I'd say the sooner and more clean you can do it, but with a lot of compassion, you know, giving somebody a decent severance package and acting respectfully and just really treating people with the utmost respect, I think is critical. Yeah. But cutting the losses you have to. early is you what have it to. is. Yeah. It's unfortunate, but it's it's the truth. And and if you don't, the whole business suffers. And and also I think the rest of your team, uh, like people reporting into that person, they they suffer as well. So I think sometimes people don't necessarily understand why a decision is made. Hmm. Um it's really a hard balance. It's really a hard balance. But I mean you know, I've unfortunately had to let go of people I loved and respected so incredibly much. And it wasn't a matter of they didn't add value. They added a tremendous amount of value, but they weren't necessarily the right person for the next stage of the company. Yeah. So this is a very important point. I want to drill in a little bit more because, you know, a lot of our founders, as I said, right, you, we have unicorn founders and funders, and it's about that point, that inflection point that is so critical. You have a short window to execute and you need to do it with some some sort of precision. Mm-hmm. And you talk about leaning into your gut feeling a lot. 
how did you find over the years you were able to sharpen that feeling to, like you said, you the decision, this is important, the decision you need to make, you already know. That's what yes. you said just now. Yeah. How do you lean into your gut feelings? Yeah, I think I've spent a lot of time honing that as a skill set mm. in terms of like a meditation practice and really getting grounded and centered in, in myself. And um, I think it's probably one of the best things a founder can do. One of the things my friends have always commented on is I was always super calm, even growing a really high growth business. And um, yeah, I've had other friends who are like, literally, they have to go to the ER because they're so stressed out and not sleeping and taking care of themselves. And I can understand, like, you're going to have times where you're killing yourself and working 20 hour days, but you can't operate like that 24 seven. So in general, as a strategy for your, for your founders, um, I would try to work like 30 hours a week. Now, of course, that's totally unrealistic. Like I would probably end up at a 60 hour a week most of the time, but that way I could at least flex up to the hundred in the times that I needed to. But if people are operating at hundred hours a week constantly, like you just can't, there's no room to flex and you're going to need it because business, like a high growth business, it's like, you know, everything's going good. And then it's the fan yes. and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, it's like riding a roller coaster. And so you have to, you have to kind of calibrate and expect that you're going to have your highs and lows and not operate at full speed 24 seven. I love that. So when you think about the highs and lows, um, one of the things that I've been reflecting on is also the seasons of a business, right? You know, I look at some of our founders, you know, this is, a, we're at a time where we're at Davos, right? Talking about a fragmented world. There's a lot of pressure with, especially with founders right now, because the truth is, 21 valuations were so hot. We agreed to valuations without sustained growth, right? Mm -hmm. So we're now struggling to catch up. Funders are as much under pressure to deliver on the returns they promised their LPs. How do you think about that in the context of seasons of a business in, in this time? What, what is the season that we're in right now? probably depends on who you're asking. But in my opinion, it's definitely a hunker down and continue to build type of era. Um, so, and, and, and keep building if you can. I mean, it really depends on the funding of the business. I personally, you know, for our business, at least this is, it's an opportunity. I think there's a lot of noise in the market and it kind of clears out some of the, some people who are running businesses quite unsustainably. So, um, I mean, in 2021, we saw people offering lots of services for free and, and you know, all these things that are like crazy high valuations. It's not sustainable in the long run. So while nobody wants to be in a recession, it's also if you have the funding to see kind of hunker down and see out the storm, it's a great time to do that. Yeah. So talking about funding, uh, you were very conscientious and very conscious about the choices that you were making and who you were inviting to the table. Can you think, can you share with us about how you thought about funding your business to get to the scale of 300 million ERR that you're now in? Yeah. Um, I thought about it in two ways. So one, of course, I wanted growth, but I didn't want growth at all costs. And um, we were fortunate to have always had a profitable business. And so to be able to reinvest in the business was really the primary way that we that we you know started hitting the, the types of numbers that you're talking about. I specifically didn't want, I mean, there's a lot of pressure to take venture capital and just blow up a huge marketing budget. I can see how it can be helpful um, for many businesses, but ultimately 
yeah, I just wanted to have a, a business that focused on the triple bottom line, which means like I didn't want to grow faster than we could deliver to our customers. And sometimes there's the time factor. So, you know, there's so much money that you can throw at a problem, but sometimes it just takes time to solve things, build things and fix things. And I wanted to build a really high quality product, probably more than the $4 billion plus valuation that we attained. Um, what I'm most proud of is that we built a really high quality product. Our customers love us. And um, also our employees are extremely happy with the business as well. And we've given great opportunities to people to grow with the business. Yeah. And I checked it out. I mean, your ratings on Glassdoor, the comments on, on you are, are pretty good, I think, you know, which is very hard to do, right? Thank I you. think there's always uh, some employee that's upset about a way something was done, especially with uh, venture-backed startups that are under tremendous pressure. And sometimes, as, as we talked about, leaders just don't know how to, they don't know what they don't know. They don't know how to handle situations. Speaking of, when you think about the mistakes that you made in your last chapter, yep, what comes to mind? Yeah, um, I think, you know, there's always the speed. How quickly can you move in any given capacity? Um, but really, the mistakes were always around just like waiting too long to make a decision related to whether we needed a different exact, you know, like pulling in people as quickly as we could. So that's the one I think that's the one thing I think that probably every founder deals with is like, you know, by the time you find the CFO who's freaking amazing, it's like it took it took a year to find that person. And it's really hard in the meantime. And you think, my God, I should have started this look, search sooner. Right. So building a network from day one is always because yeah. you never know when you need this person. Yeah. And I would say also um, having world-class recruiters on your side, even though it is painfully expensive and, and just it seems kind of absurd. They, they, they really are worth their weight in gold. Mm. Yeah. And more painful otherwise, right? If you exactly. hire the wrong person and don't cut the fat before it. Yes. Well, yeah. And you have to, yeah, you just have to have the right people or else you cannot build a business. Yeah. Okay. So changing tech a little bit here. Uh, as mentioned, you know, we, we're talking about cooperation in a fragmented world. Uh, you're here to be talking about the future trends and all that, given the work that you've done as well as uh, one of the innovators under the World Economic Forum. What are you seeing uh, to be number one in terms of the future of work, uh, the future of employment, the gig economy, create economy, so many buzzwords these yeah. days. What are you, what's top of mind for you? I just love being part of this yeah. era because it's so much fun to witness so many talented people really have the freedom that comes with creating their own lives and kind of owning it and, and having the ability to do so. I mean, uh, moving away from the traditional uh, only employee, full-time employee, you know, go to the office every day era is, it's fun. You know, it's nice to see people let their creative energy flow. Okay. So what are we seeing? First, I mean, some of this will sound obvious, but but I don't think entirely. So basically, what we're seeing is companies are hiring everybody everywhere. The results or the impact that I think that has is it's going to change the political landscape of countries. So, for example, in the United States, you know, it was always California and the coasts are blue and the, mid, the middle is red, re Republican. Um, I mean, San Francisco is emptied out. Those people are living in Montana and Arkansas and Ohio now. And I think that's going to change things in a way that nobody predicts. Yeah. Um, we're also seeing as companies hire, hire talent wherever the talent is, instead of trying to hire everybody within a 50-mile radius of headquarters, we're seeing people start to be paid what they're worth instead of being paid market norm compensation based on the jurisdiction that we live in. So, for example, you know, before, if you were an engineer... 
Um, you'd be paid the Silicon Valley salary if you if you lived in the Silicon Valley, and you'd be paid an Ohio salary if you lived in Ohio. That is no longer the case. Um, it's really how good you are really matters. So we're seeing engineers in India being paid as much almost as as uh, engineers in the Silicon Valley. Sometimes it really depends on their pedigree, which companies they've worked with and how good they are. But um, and also who they're working for, you know, startups still don't pay as much as huge companies, but it's it's a little more fun. Um, so anyway, I think that's going to completely change the landscape of the world overall. I mean, imagine Imagine being from a tiny village, and as long as you have a good internet connection, you can really still still make the money that you would living far away. Um, it's like a dream come true. So we have the idea of um, you know there was always the American dream. People came to the to the to the United States from all over the world to make it, and now they can make it everywhere. It's like the American dream has gone global, and I really love that. Um, let's see. Finally, we haven't seen it yet, but I think that. Um, you know, right now um, in developed economies, it's really hard to find enough people to work doing things like working in coffee shops and restaurants. You know, I've recently, I went to my local coffee shop and they said, we're, we're shut for the day. There was a sign on the door because there's nobody to work. Those people are not refusing to work. I think there's a lot of things in the media about like the, the great resignation. Um they're not refusing to work. They're working for Instacart because they can control their own hours. They don't have to deal with a boss. So they're not working at coffee shops anymore. And I think we're going to see a little bit more of that with the professional class too, um, what's traditionally been called, you know, white, white collar workers, because the gig economy is going to really, um, it's going, yeah. I mean, I think the gig economy is going to the professional jobs as well. And it's, it's going to be really interesting to see how that how that changes things. Yeah. So democratization of opportunities is what what you're talking about. I think that's the core that we're taking home here. And I, I love the shift in the geopolitical landscape as well with this shift, right? I, I mean, I was researching during the pandemic, apparently Boise, Idaho is very popular with all the Silicon Valley blokes, you know, that's Amazing. where they all went, <laughs> ended up. So in Boise, Idaho is a little town, but has now become a, a vibe in itself as, as the people say now. So very interesting as we see things change. But what worries you in this? I mean, you know, the Global Risk Report was just published today. Uh, and of course, the future of work is, is top of mind as well. What worries you about this future of work? I'm not overly worried about it, but I think that it's destabilizing. You know, I think that we're going through such a rapid period of change with AI and um, GPT chat and all of these things that it's just really destabilizing. So ultimately, um, the the labor market there's there's always going to be work to be had um you know for for highly educated people and there's not going to be enough people um there's nothing that worries me about our business related to that but just the general instability of the world as so much um technology comes into play and just keeps kind of rocking the the economic landscape in ways that governments can't really keep up with the entrepreneurs. It's just not meant to. And I think it's hard for people to predict around that. Yeah. So one thing I want to pick on is... Hold that thought. My First Million, hosted by Sam Parr and Shan Puri, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. My First Million features amazing guests like Alex Hormozzi, Sophia Omoroso, Hassan Minaj, sharing their secrets for how they made their first million and how to apply their learnings to capitalize on today's business trends and opportunities. An episode I really liked, a recent one on how Sam's mother-in-law built a million-dollar Etsy business out of nothing and i believe it involves 
hellos. So listen to My First Million wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, you know, the work that I do, a lot of it is about seeing women leadership, being funded, mm-hmm. being unicorns like you and quadricorns, as you call it, and beyond. But there is also the great resignation for women leaving the workplace with this future of work, right? Mm-hmm. During the pandemic, during the lockdown, the childcare responsibilities, so on and so forth. And you're in the forefront of seeing what's happening with the workforce in itself. Mm-hmm. What are you seeing with women and, and what can we expect in this future of work for women? I think it's everybody actually is just putting their foot down and saying like, I'm not going to work from seven in the morning until 6 p.m. and and like never see my children. And like people just don't want to live like that. And companies kind of have to deal with it because because that's the entire labor force. Like it basically happened to all of us at once. So I actually don't think it's only women. I think women are just as much in demand as as males, which is really nice to see. So employers are shifting the way that they're working and they're engaging their workforce. But but of course, you know, whilst I too like to think that it's everyone, but the reality is the data has shown us that women have exited the workforce at a higher rate, mm-hmm. right? And that's because of part of it is deep embedded stereotypes of women still having a triple burden because although husband and wife are home with working from home, the wife does more of that. Do you think the types of jobs that women will lead in will change in the future or any, do you have any predictions, crystal ball type predictions of what that looks like? Yeah. I mean, I think women are probably more drawn to the gig economy, but at the end of the day, women are extraordinarily entrepreneurial and hard workers. I think the data probably also shows that there's more female breadwinners than men. And then that, that uh, percentage is growing. So but you're right. I mean, women do that. We carry a lot of work in a, in a different way that I think hasn't necessarily been recognized and isn't impacting women significantly. And what would you say to, um, I guess, an employer today when when they're thinking about how can I do better to ensure that my workforce is diverse and that I'm, as they call it, the buzzword, future proofing mm. my company? What would your advice be? I think that's exactly the right approach and that um, it doesn't happen by, you know, wishing for it, like setting really hard metrics and, and keeping a close eye on every part of the company and making that a mandate from day one is critical. So at GP, I mean, in the early days when we hired a country manager in a new office, I would pick up the phone and say, like, before I give you this job offer, I want to make sure we have an understanding. You know, you're going to have you're going to hire a diverse team, which was especially important in a place, um, you know, that that didn't necessarily focus on diversity. And um, I think hiring, you know, like I mentioned earlier, hiring your general manager in each country and making sure that your first employee in, in any given country or on team is kind of really aligned with your cultural identity and perspective is important. We we still to this, we've always had a 50-50 workforce and we still do with, yeah. I think, about 1,100 people right now. Yeah. And, and if I may pick on one example of um, your just approach to things and, and what I think many leaders should emulate, you were in the Middle East. I know that the leader at one point in time of your Middle East office was a woman. Yeah. But of course, in the Middle East, in certain situations, you have to bring in another counterpart. Yeah. And you were willing to pay that extra cost. Yes. Tell us about how you thought about that, because a lot of business leaders, it's like, ah, doesn't make business sense. How did this make business sense for you? It did make business sense because she was the most competent person I had met. In, in the Middle East. And I just really respected her. She was one of those people who was going to get things done. Um, and there were things she couldn't do. Like there's some doors that one would have a hard time opening. So like with the government officials um, who are typically male in that specific country, um, there's a lot of like networking that happens at home. It's not that 
it's not because there's a lot of women doing business in the Middle East and quite successfully in Middle Eastern women too. But like, um, it might be difficult for a woman, like a woman's not going to be invited into the government, uh, like the after hours parties at someone's home, you know, because the social life is more segregated. Um, that wasn't going to happen. So, so yeah, I mean, I think, but, but she was going to get the job done that we needed done and she knew how to get things done. So it was kind of a no brainer. I think you have to hire somebody, whoever is best for the job, who seems super smart is going to get it done. And I think oftentimes like the most entrepreneurial person and the, and just like that grit of I'm going to do what it takes. And that's what I've always looked for. Absolutely. I always say, you know, we're hiring the best people for the job. We're funding the best people. Many of them happen to be women. Yes. Many leaders are born women. Now uh, we go to one of my favorite parts of this show, billion dollar questions, quick questions, no context. First thing that comes to mind, you know, just spit it out basically. Money or power, Nicole? Mm, I think money is power, but happiness is the most important. Fame or fortune? Fortune. What keeps you up at night still? Nothing. A moment you felt like giving up? I have never felt like giving up. What would you tell your younger self? Keep going. When have you taken a stand on something and why? Oh, yes. Um... I think things I've taken a stand on are really around integrity. It's really, really important to me to be honest and uh, treat people fairly. So it's just something that's core to my nature. If something's unfair, I just can't, can't tolerate it. What does the world need more of today? Joy. Your guilty pleasure that has actually made your life pretty good. Dark chocolate and deep <laughs> tissue massages. <laughs> I agree. Those are my top two, too. I did one like before the conference. I'm going to have one in a spot after this. A habit you've picked up that has changed your life? Meditation. How often do you meditate? Every day, multiple times. Wow. A book that has made a significant impact on you? Uh, the Untethered Soul. And what will your legacy be? Oh, um... Let's see. I think my legacy will be helping a lot of people, ultimately, um, both from a business perspective and from a philanthropic perspective. Wow. Well, Nicole, you have already started to make that impact with millions of jobs created around the world in many different ways. You know, I mean, the flywheel effect is there with globalization. And we're so excited for what's next for you. But thank you for taking the time and for making billion dollar moves. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. I really enjoyed meeting you and congratulations on your amazing podcast. And, all that you do. and thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chen Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with friends. I'm Sarah Chen Spellings and you've been listening to Billion Dollar Moves.